Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amon 4. Here's what's coming up. The Russian prison service says Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny is dead. We bring you the very latest. And Christian gets reaction from former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton at this year's Munich Security Conference. Plus, the choice is very simple. You're either scared or you go on. I chose to go on a long time ago. I won't give up on my country. I won't give up on my civil rights. A thorn in Putin's side. Correspondent Matthew Chance looks back at the courageous life of the anti-corruption campaigner. Then, with dissent being quashed inside Russia and all-out war in Ukraine, we'll delve into what Navalny's death might mean for the world with journalists Mikhail Zigur and Peter Pomerantsev. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the program. I'm Bianca Goldriga in New York, sitting in for Christian Amanpour. It's news that stunned the world. Alexei Navalny, Russia's most famous opposition figure, has died while in jail. That's according to the country's prison authorities. A chorus of world leaders are calling for accountability, from the NATO Secretary General, who says Russia has, quote, serious questions to answer, to U.S. President Joe Biden, who praised Navalny for bravely standing up to corruption and violence. He said that he was outraged, but not surprised. Take a listen. Make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Putin is responsible. What has happened to Navalny is yet more proof of Putin's brutality. Now it comes as leaders converge in Munich for the annual security conference, where Russia was already top of the agenda. This morning, Alexei Navalny's wife, Yulia, took to the conference stage, urging the international community to take a stand. I want them to know that they will be punished for what they have done with our country, with my family, and with my husband. They will be brought to justice, and this day will come soon. It is unclear how Navalny may have died, but state media is reporting the doctors tried to resuscitate him for more than half an hour. Like all outspoken Kremlin critics, Navalny knew that he had a target on his back. In 2020, he was poisoned with the nerve agent Novichok and treated in Germany. Navalny blamed Putin for that. Moscow denied it. But despite great risk, he wanted to return home, as he explained to Christian just before he flew back to Russia. Why do you want to go back? And, and I guess, do you think you'll be safe when you go back? Well, well, I don't uh, think that I uh, can have a, such a privilege being safe in Russia, but uh, I have to go back because I don't want these, uh, you know, groups of killer exist in Russia. I don't want Putin uh, be ruling of Russia. I don't want him being president. I don't want him being czar of Russia because, well, he's killing people. He's the reason why our the whole country is degradating. He's the reason why people are so poor. We have 25 million people living below the poverty line. And the whole degradation of system, uh, fortunately for me, including system of assassination of people, uh, he's the reason of that. And uh, I want to go back and try to change it. While there have been reports of Navalny's deteriorating health for months now, the news has come as a shock to many. As Navalny's mother says, she saw her son on Monday and he was healthy and cheerful. And just yesterday, Alexei Navalny got laughs in court when he joked with the judge in one of his final appearances. 
Your Honor, I am waiting, and I will send you my bank account number so that you could warm it up a little from your huge salary of a federal judge. Because my money is running dry, and because of the decision you took, it will end even sooner. So do transfer, Alexander Alexandrovich. You too, please have the whole prison chip in. Bye. Up until the very end, he used his humor as a weapon to fight the system. So how is it that Alexei Navalny rose to become Vladimir Putin's most prominent opponent? And what drove him to continue his opposition, knowing the inevitable consequences? Correspondent Matthew Chance reports. A blogger and lawyer turned opposition politician and anti-corruption campaigner. Alexei Navalny was a menace for the Kremlin, who was not afraid to call President Putin out directly. Corruption is not just Putin, yet his is the base. He is a man who governs openly with the help of corruption. Navalny rose to prominence in 2008, exposing corruption in state-owned corporations. Three years later, he emerged as the leader of mass protests in the country after allegations of fraud in parliamentary elections. Navalny was arrested several times during his life, including in 2013 after being convicted of embezzlement charges just as he was preparing to run for mayor of Moscow. It was a campaign he would lose. Navalny denied all the charges and called them politically motivated. A retrial in 2017 prevented him from running for office, this time for president against Vladimir Putin. That same year, he was attacked with a green antiseptic fluid. It caused him damage in the vision of his right eye and temporarily dyed his skin green. The leading. One year later, Navalny told me what kept him going. The choice is very simple. You are either scared or you go on. I chose to go on a long time ago. I won't give up on my country. I won't give up on my civil rights. He exercised those rights by calling on his millions of followers across social media to protest, putting him firmly in the Kremlin's crosshairs. In August 2020, on a flight from Tomsk to Moscow, Navalny fell seriously ill. An emergency diversion by the plane's pilot appears to have saved his life. Amid an international outcry, he was allowed to fly for treatment to Germany, where it was discovered he'd been poisoned with Novichok, a chemical nerve agent. Later, a CNN Bellingcat investigation revealed that for years, Navalny had been trailed by FSB agents. The Kremlin has repeatedly denied any involvement. But an assassination attempt and a medically induced coma didn't deter Navalny from taking his fight to a higher level. Constantin. Whilst recovering in Germany, he conducted a sting operation against an FSB agent, convincing the operative to detail in a phone call how the Novichok was used against him. That was then broadcast on his YouTube channel. Shortly after, he released a video offering Russians a look at what his team called Putin's palace, a mansion by the Black Sea, estimated to be worth more than a billion dollars. President Putin denied the palace belongs to him or his family members. In January 2021, Navalny returned to Moscow after receiving life-saving treatment in Germany. 
He was immediately arrested for violating probation terms imposed from a 2014 case and sent to a penal colony where he went on hunger strike protesting against prison officials' refusal to grant him access to proper medical care. He'll be remembered for his bravery in tackling corruption across Russia and as one of Vladimir Putin's biggest adversaries. Our thanks to Matthew Chance for that report. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, now Nina Khrushcheva followed Alexei Navalny's opposition campaign against Vladimir Putin closely. The Russian historian and author is also the great-granddaughter of 20th century Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev, and she joins me now. Uh, Nina, I wish we were speaking under better circumstances, even though we knew that Alexei Navalny was in deteriorating health. There was something uh, immortal about him, given everything that he had overcome and survived, and yet decided once he was rehabilitated to go back to Russia, where he clearly was a true patriot of the country in every sense of the word. Now news that that he has died um, a slow death, a a slow murder, one could describe, um, given his treatment. What is your reaction to the news? Well, he's immortal, and he's more immortal now than he's dead because he's become a symbol of uh, this kind of resistance to the system when you know it's going to destroy you and you still fight it. So in this sense, he's like a new Andrei Sakharov uh, of, of this generation. He's willing to sacrifice his life. But uh, and I was talking to a lot of friends and people who obviously care and the whole world cares. And everybody was saying, we were expecting this because we knew that the system ultimately, even if it's not a direct order from the Kremlin, the system is going to kill him because it is the death uh, by the hand of of the state Uh, and still a shock. It is a shock because somehow you hope that because he was such a brave man, he was such a hero, he was such a patriot that somehow fate will spare him. And fate, of course, did not spare him. And he died uh, even though just right before his death, he was joking. Uh, He saw his mother, he saw his lawyer uh, on Wednesday who said that he seemed fine, but he wasn't fine. I mean, I think think he was sent to solitary confinement uh, 27 times. Uh, He was there for two weeks at a time just because his button was not buttoned the right way, or he didn't say hello in a cheerful manner. So it was, the way he was treated was amounting to torture. And in this sense, not only it is, unfortunate history of 
Russian great leaders, uh, oppositional leaders that have to sacrifice their lives to oppose the state, but also it's yet another evidence of how inhumane, horrific, and torturous and villainous the state is. You compare him to uh, Sakharov, but um, let's recall we're coming up on the nine-year anniversary of the murder uh, of another opposition charismatic figure, uh, and that was um, Boris Nemtsov, who, who was murdered in 2015 in, in Moscow. Um, people were saying similar things about him, that, that, that his murder would change the trajectory of Putin's power, of his control over the country. And we've only seen, seen it clamped down. Uh, recall, Nina, when when uh, Navalny returned in 2021, there were mass protests on the street after he was initially arrested. And now you see images of people taking to the streets, not in Russian cities at large, but, you know, mostly in neighboring European capitals. Do, do you think this impacts Russia at all and specifically Putin's hold on power? Well, it, it does. And in fact, uh, Boris Nemtsov's death in 2015, it impacted because uh, and I was talking about the, the torturous and murderous system is that every time something like that happened, actually the state gets tougher. So the more blood it spills, the more blood it wants. So in this sense, after Nimtsov's death, uh, the state got... Um, uh, got tougher and tougher on its critics. So that happened. And I'm, I expect that to happen again. But also, I mean, you say neighboring countries, not just in neighboring countries. I mean, there are images pouring from Moscow and Yekaterinburg and other cities where people bring uh, bring flowers. In effect, you saw already that FSB, the security forces, the MVD, the internal forces, they already warned people against any oppositional movements, anything, anything. So I would imagine that soon enough, if uh, if there is more and more pouring outpouring of support and condolences, people will start getting arrested. In fact, I was going to this opposition uh, meetings when Navalny returned, and they were indeed massive. And very quickly, I mean, I think they would allow us to protest for about an hour and then people would be just taken into police stations in, in, in giant numbers. So that suggests that the state is still in incredibly weak, despite, uh, not still, despite all the clampdown, clamp it shows the absolute weakness of that state. It doesn't mean it's going to collapse tomorrow, but it means that the more Putin expands his power over people, the more he gets paranoid, but also the more protest is brewing somewhere underneath. And that's why he's going to clamp down more, but he's also less safe than he was when he would allow a little bit of opposition to exist, because that's how you get the steam out. So if I were him, knowing Russian history, I would be quite worried. And the Kremlin spin on all of this is that the death uh, of um, this Kremlin critic, right, and uh, Alexei Navalny's um, passing and murder, let, let's just call it that, given how he's been treated uh, over the past few years, uh, only benefits the West and not Russia, not the Kremlin. Do you view it that way? Because the, the, we heard from President Biden just a few minutes ago that he, in his view, and I think many would agree, the best response for this would be for Congress to get its act together and finally pass that legislation that would see some $60 billion in aid going to help Ukraine. Well, that's true. But, you know, part of the Congress that doesn't <coughs> 
approve of this legislation is the Trump people. And we remember that Trump said, well, you know, maybe Putin killed people, but we also kill people. So for him, it's not such a big deal. And hence, for his wing of the party, Trump's wing of the party, it may not be such a big deal. So yes, but perhaps maybe not. Uh, but as for uh, Putin taking advantage of this or not taking advantage of that. I think logically, yes, it would be a really horrible thing for Putin before the elections. Navalny was not forgotten, but it was sort of quiet and under the rug. And, you know, he was somewhere behind the Ar Arctic Circle and not every day he would be remembered. And one time there was another opposition figure, journalist of Novaya Gazeta, Anna Politkovskaya, who was similarly killed in 2006. And Putin said, well, she was more important to me alive uh, than dead because now she's a martyr. I think that uh, logically, rationally, it is the case, but in a paranoid mind of a person who has been in power for 25 years, the dead martyrs are still better than live martyrs because they cannot, the image of them, he thinks, is not as important when there is a live figure leading uh, the potential protest. So in this sense, I think where Putin is concerned, just yet another opposition is dead, and there are so many still remained. And so if they disappear, then he's going to rule forever. But that's how dictators think. That's not how rational politics is done. Putin is a dictator, and therefore he thinks in Stalin-esque terms, in dictatorial form, terms, which has nothing to do with uh, with rational, uh, rational explanation of what happened and how to react to this. If you're even darker days ahead for Russia under Vladimir Putin, uh, Nina Khrushcheva, thank you so much for your time. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. So how is the world reacting to all of this, and what is the mood like at the Munich Security Conference? Christian joins me from Munich now, and Christian, this news just a gut punch to everyone around the world, especially those who are there with you, most notably that being Alexei Navalny's wife. Yulia, who is so brave to speak to the audience there. I know you're speaking with world leaders about it, and you're going to be speaking now former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton on this issue. Indeed, and the former secretary is with me right now. You know, there was an audible gasp from so many people. I mean, some people cried, some people yelled, some people were just completely shocked. It's really cast a pall over this uh, conference, which already has challenges about America's continued leadership of NATO, about whether Ukraine will survive another year. So this has been incredibly difficult for everybody here. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton is joining me. And you very quickly tweeted, Madam Secretary, thank you for being with us uh, on this day. Uh, you know, your condolences, not only to his family and friends and his staff, but to the people of Russia. You were yes. sending a message. I, I was, uh, Christiane. You know, I've gotten to know um, Navalny's wife and daughter. I've gotten to work with a number of the people who have been around him, exposing corruption, uh, putting together an opposition agenda to Putin. And... It was so uh, tragic to hear uh, that uh, he's been killed, and there's no doubt in my mind, and I know President Biden just made a statement based on uh, the intelligence available to our government, 
that uh, his death is a result of uh, Putin's brutality. And it is a tragedy for Russia that someone who was willing to stand up and speak out and, and really represent a different future for Russia uh, should be uh, killed. And, and you probably have heard that he was actually on video yesterday from the prison doing uh, some kind of a legal uh, appearance. He looked healthy. He was uh, his usual kind of confident, uh, joke-cracking self. In fact, his wife and others who saw that video yesterday were quite reassured uh, that he was okay. And then we get this terrible news today. And I want to read what you chose of him to put out in your tweet. This is Alexei Navalny. Listen, I've got something very obvious to tell you. You're not allowed to give up. If they decide to kill me, it means that we are incredibly strong. You know, that was him right. kind of, you know, a death foretold right. and trying to tell his people, do not give up hope one way or the other. And you have had a plenty of experience when you were Secretary of State with mm -hmm. President Putin, with elections there, with the whole, you know, attempt at some kind of democracy. What do you think this means today? I mean, what room is there in Russia anymore for that? Well, I think it's important that uh, those of us who believe in the human spirit and freedom and democracy and who believe the Russian people deserve a lot better than they're getting under uh, Putin and his cronies uh, take to heart what uh, Navalny said in that quote that I used uh, in responding to his death. Because, you know, change doesn't happen easily and it doesn't happen because we want it. It happens because year after year, strong people are willing to say, this is wrong, we deserve better. And honestly, I think what he is alluding to in that comment is it shows weakness. You know, he went back to Russia. Uh, the film about him uh, going back and, and Putin's first attempt to murder him by poison and how he uh, miraculously recovered thanks to German Indeed. medical treatment, yeah. and we're here in Munich. Um, you know, this um, film, which you haven't, if you haven't seen it, you should see it, it won the Academy Award, shows a man who is truly, you know, engaged at every level, every cell of his body, in trying to, you know, stand up for what Russia could be. He knew when he went back he was going to be arrested. He was literally arrested at the airport. Um, and I think it may not have been a death foretold, but an awareness of the risk he was taking. And it, this is a message also for people in Europe and in the United States particularly, who think that you can somehow make a deal with Putin, that you can let down your defenses when someone who's as brutal uh, a dictator as he is uh, intends only to dominate. And if that means killing your opposition, as he's done with so many people over so many years, or invading a peaceful neighbor and trying to bend it to his will, that's what he will do. So you lead me obviously into, before this death, mm -hmm. the real questions here, as I alluded at the beginning mm -hmm. in introducing you, was can Ukraine survive another year? Will the United States step up? And will the United States continue to be uh, a leader of NATO, given uh, former President Trump's recent comments? You know, President Biden said this week, supporting this bill, the one for foreign aid and military aid, is standing up to Putin, opposing it is uh, playing into Putin's hands. Yes. What, I mean, you're a former senator. <laughs> you know, the Senate came kicking and screaming, but they passed it, but the House hasn't passed right. it. Where do you think, you know, in the political realm, this is going to go? Well, one thing I know for sure 
if this bill from the Senate were ever put on the floor of the House, it would pass. It would pass uh, overwhelmingly because the people who are preventing it, starting with the uh, Speaker, uh, Mike Johnson, um, are not doing America's business. They're doing Donald Trump's business. And why is Donald Trump so enamored of Putin? Well, part of it is he's a wannabe dictator. He has told us that repeatedly. He even said the other day, let's uh, basically get out of NATO and, you know, encourage Putin to do what he wants to do. How absurd a statement that is cannot even be, you know, measured um, because you are essentially giving a green light to a murderous, brutal dictator. Nobody who is siding with Trump on this issue would want to live under that kind of regime. I want to ask you, though, you said if it came to the floor of the House, it would pass yes, overwhelmingly. It would. We know that the majority of Americans believe and support NATO yes. and they, they, they want to support it. But why do you think that then? Why isn't it coming to the floor of the House? Well, this is one of the great political mysteries of our time because there are Republicans who feel that they took an oath to Donald Trump, not to uh, the United States of America. And I don't say that lightly, but I cannot understand it. There are people I served with in the Senate for eight years who have turned on America in order to uh, curry favor with Trump. I don't recognize these people. Uh, these are people who I worked with, that uh, I traveled with, and to hear what's coming out of their mouths now is just shocking to me. So there's something going on in this minority of the Republican members of Congress, particularly in the House, that makes them seem as though they're a member of the Trump cult, not that they took an oath to serve our country and you know, work on behalf of their constituents. I'm hoping that, um, you know, better heads will prevail and we will get that vote. For those who say this is just Trump in campaign mode. No, that's not true, Christiane. You need to listen to him and take him seriously. He is telling us what he wants to do. He wants to be a dictator on day one. He wants to uh, round up people because of the way they look. You know, they may or may not be undocumented. It doesn't matter to him. He wants to call out the army to do that. He wants to use, you know, the Insurrection Act to militarize American law enforcement. He has a whole team of right-wing uh, thinkers, so to speak, who are coming up with an agenda called Project 2025. He wants to rid the government of any kind of independent expertise. So, you know, he wants people who will say when he said memorably during COVID, maybe you should inject yourself with bleach. Instead of looking shocked, they'll say, yes, sir, Mr. President. That's what he wants. He wants to bend the government of the United States to his will, just like Vladimir Putin did to Russia. So what do you think then this Munich, Munich Security Conference is going to be able to, do you think people like yourself, people like uh, Vice President Harris who told the, yes. the plenary today mm -hmm. that the United States stands firm, mm -hmm. it will still you know, carry out its leadership mm -hmm. role and that they hope they can still continue uh, supporting Ukraine. Do you, do you feel that people will be comforted by that? Will they be able to believe it? How do you think Europe is going to react to this kind of anxiety about America? Well, I know because I've been talking to a lot of European leaders, people that I served with uh, when I was Secretary of State, knew uh, in years even before that. They're worried. They're worried about uh, not just America's leadership, 
that that's like a shorthand of saying America's values, America's spine, America's conscience, America's values. Are we going to walk away from an aggressive war on the continent of Europe? We've been down that road before. We've seen this movie. It doesn't turn out well for the United States, Europe, and the world. So I think that there is going to have to be some very um, open, honest conversations about you know, what this will do to the United States. And I thought the vice president gave a very strong, good speech today outlining some of those consequences. And I want to just throw in this factoid. If you look at all of the money that Europe has given uh, to Ukraine to support its war efforts, primarily military, some humanitarian, they've given more money than the United States. They've given more money on a per capita basis. They've given more money on an absolute comparison. Europe understands what's at stake. Putin would not stop if he got his way in Ukraine. Apparently, uh, Senator Angus King, he told me on the, on the program a week or so ago that the United States actually, in terms of GDP and how much it puts into its defense budget, is 15. Actually, the European countries, especially those that surround Russia mm -hmm. and are very vulnerable, they do relatively more. That's right. So that, he said to me, was a bit of a, uh, you know, a, a, whatever they call it, a, a straw Yeah, and, and that's what Trump keeps saying. They have to pay their way, they pay their way. Mm -hmm. On a comparative basis, uh, Senator King is absolutely right. You know, as I said, it's very, very touch and go for Ukraine right now, militarily. They're running out of everything. Yes, they are. The stories from the front lines are really terrifying. Not only the personnel exhausted, but they are reporting a lack of shells and, you know, all of that stuff. I, I spoke to the former NATO general and commander, General Philip Breedlove, and he said Ukraine can win, but it depends on us, on yes. Western That's will right. and on American will and yes. on American political leaders. That's right. Well, he's, he's absolutely right. I mean, he knows the military situation. I know the political situation. If we actually voted to reflect the majority in Congress, the majority in the United States, we would be sending more help to Ukraine right now. I think in order to fill the gap between now and when we can try to force a vote on the uh, floor of the House, which I think is what's going to have to happen, um, other countries need to look at their weapon stocks. If they were thinking of sending or selling something to someone else, halt that sale, send it to Ukraine. We've got to keep Ukraine going. Uh, and they are running out of ammunition. I was just speaking with some Ukrainian representatives and, you know, their frontline soldiers who have been so brave are literally getting, a, you know, a couple of shells. That's all they're getting. And they need more help. And they need more air defense and more anti-missile defense Can as well. Can I switch to another terrible war that's, that's exacting <laughs> yes. terrible casualties and the president yes. is very, you know, trying to figure out a way to stop the worst uh, casualties here. You said uh, last week Netanyahu should go. This is, of course, Israel, Palestine, Gaza. Mm -hmm. He is not a trustworthy leader. It was on his watch that the October 7th attack happened. He needs to go, and if he's an obstacle to a ceasefire, if he's an obstacle to exploring what's to be done the day after, he needs to go. Yes, what does. do you think is going to happen? It's not clear yet, but I, I can say what should happen, and I know this is what the United States government, the Biden administration, is working on. Uh, they are working very hard for a ceasefire that includes not only a cessation of hostilities uh, in Gaza, but also the release of all the hostages. Uh, they are working very hard to persuade Netanyahu uh, not to go forward with what we are hearing him say, which is some kind of massive 
uh, attack on Rafah, there is no way you can move a million people out of harm's way. And that has to be stopped. There needs to be a plan to continue to try to extract those Hamas leaders who are still embedded in the tunnels uh, in southern Gaza, but not at the cost of, you know, a humanitarian disaster, the likes of which we have not yet seen. And there needs to be a conversation starting right now about the so-called day after. Who's going to be at the table? Who's going to actually come with ideas? How are we going to get a reformed Palestinian authority? How are we going to get leadership in Israel who understandably reflects the trauma that has been visited upon Israelis, um, but understands also that in order to have a secure Israel, there has to be movement toward a two-state solution. That's a lot of work that all has to go on at the same time. It's my understanding from talks that I've been having, that's exactly what the Biden administration is doing and trying to pull off. Secretary Clinton, thank you very much indeed. Biana, back to you. And let's not forget that actually when Yulia Navalny was out there in the plenary, after she spoke about her husband and what needed to be done to hold his killers accountable, she got a massive standing ovation. You can imagine everybody here is with her. And Navalny has been a cause that not just her, her family, staff and the others, not just many Russian people, but the whole world has been looking at him personifying the quest for freedom and democracy in Russia and clearly that struggle has a long way to go. Yeah, so much strength in Yulia Navalny and there's been long talk about her carrying the baton and carrying the mantle for him while he was alive behind bars. Perhaps she can continue his fight uh, for change in Russia, anti-corruption, uh, for democracy in the country and a regime change uh, herself as well. She is somebody to be watched very closely. Uh, Christian, fascinating interview with Secretary Clinton. Thank you. Well, as we've mentioned, when Navalny fell ill on that flight after being poisoned, it was Germany that gave him medical treatment and safe refuge. So it's no surprise that German Chancellor Olaf Scholz had strong words today in Berlin upon hearing the reports of Navalny's death. He and the Ukrainian president presented a united front. Of course, Volodymyr Zelensky knows as well as anyone what Vladimir Putin is capable of. Putin doesn't care who dies as long as he retains his position, and that is why he must not keep anything. Putin must lose everything. He must not retain anything and must be held accountable for what he has done. We now, if we didn't already, know exactly what kind of regime this is. Anyone who voices criticism, who stands up for democracy, must fear for their safety and their lives. This is no longer a democracy and has not been for a long time now. Well, just after those words, the two nations announced a historic security deal, promising $1 billion in military aid for Ukraine's war. The erosion of democracy inside Russia and the assault on Ukraine's borders are, of course, intimately intertwined. I'm joined now by Mikhail Ziger, author of All the Kremlin's Men and founding editor of Russian news channel TV Rain, and Peter Pomorontsev, a Soviet-born British journalist and author who has reported extensively from inside Ukraine. Welcome, both of you, to this program. Um, listen, we've all long dreaded having to have this conversation, inevitably knowing the condition uh, that Navalny was in and the deteriorating health that, that he was facing, um, that this day was um, just inevitable, sadly. And here we are. And yet, uh, Misha, I'll start with you. It's very hard to digest that, that he is no longer here. Um, 
you posted on Instagram, we dreamed of him becoming president of Russia. He has been our future for so long. Now we no longer have this future. There will be another one. And Alexei will always be with us. He will become more than a president. Can you elaborate on that and your feelings uh, when you heard this news? Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you for this question, Biana. Um, you know, I, 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 all, all this morning I, I have to speak to to my friends or to people I even barely know, uh, because a lot of people are really devastated and uh, a lot of people uh, have a feeling that the future is over, that we don't have any any hopes anymore. And uh, and that's 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 my response I usually offer, that uh, for now, um, Alexei Navalny is a historic superhero. Mina Khrushchev has recently compared him to, to Andrei Sakharov, but, um, no, um, Navalny is probably has a uh, he has a potential of something much bigger than Andrei Sakharov. He is the the first founding father of uh, of a new Russia because he he was really the most popular politician. He was really the person capable to win the presidential election, unlike uh, Sakharov or Boris Nemtsov. Yeah, uh, he is the person uh, who is going to be the role model for the future generations of Russian. Uh, oppressions, and I, I hope that um, he he will be because in in Russian uh, troubled uh, imperial history we didn't have a lot of genuine uh, superheroes who really believed in democracy, who really uh, were able to give their lives uh, for for democracy and freedom of speech and for uh, the new decent democratic Russia. So, and that's. That's the the role uh, of Alexei Navalny is going to be remembered for. So I guess he is going to be um, the the superhero for generations, for decades. Peter, I want to put up a photo that is just so heartbreaking for me to see now, and that is of uh, Boris Nemtsov, another opposition leader, a charismatic former leader uh, in Russia who was murdered. We're coming upon the nine-year anniversary of the, his murder uh, in Moscow, uh, just steps away from the Kremlin. Um, the, I don't know if we have it, if we can put it up. There it is. I tweeted it today. It's a photo of Boris Nemtsov standing next to Alexei Navalny, both of them joking, laughing, smiling. And I, I really view this photo as a representation of what Russia could have been with either one of these men at the helm of the country or at least least uh, prominent figures that are allowed to speak publicly and to campaign publicly and not behind closed bars and not as martyrs post-death or murder. Uh, what are your views now as we assess what the, the picture, the bleak picture, looks like going forward, at least in the short term for Russia in terms of anyone else being able to fill those voids? So I would add many more pictures, many more pictures of um, dissidents and journalists killed within Russia, and then the tens and hundreds of thousands of people Putin has killed in Syria and in Ukraine. Um, the greatest hope for putting an end to Putin's regime lies with Ukrainians and with us in backing Ukrainians. Inside Russia, for the moment, we see no signs of resistance. Um, it is Ukraine that is fighting for its own life, for our freedom and for theirs. 
And, and yet, Misha, it's just now, uh, you know, as you're speaking in from the U.S., as Peter's speaking from the U.S., as we've had correspondence and guests on from Western Europe where they're free to say what they want and free to speak out and, and protest on the streets or commemorate uh, the life of Alexei Navalny, you're seeing a real crackdown within Russia. Moscow's prosecutor's office now warns that protesting against Navalny's death will not be authorized. Uh, give us a sense of what you expect to see, if any, in terms of a reaction among Russians to this news. You know, I'm not, mm, I'm not sure that, that we're going to see a lot of uh, protest rallies today, although um, a lot of people are really um, Heart, heartbroken, and I—it's uh, weird that, that that I receive a lot of a lot of personal messages on my so, social media from people who uh, apologize that they cannot uh, put like under my post because they they are in Russia. But I guess that um, I'm not sure that it's a coincidence or not. But uh, Navalny is is murdered right ahead of the presidential election in Russia, and this time Navalny had a very clear strategy about this presidential. Election. His advice and his his appeal to Russian audience was to vote for any uh, candidate except for for President Putin. And uh, we have just seen uh, a, a phenomena that uh, a person completely not known by the majority of the audience, uh, whose name was Boris Nadezhdin, um, has has become the, the second most popular uh, politician in, uh, in in Russia, just uh, opposing the war. He was barred from running, but now we still have uh, Putin and four, um, three puppets, uh, and I guess that Navalny strategy can be uh, can be a huge pain for uh, for the uh, the ruling regime for for Putin because um, there is no no hope that uh, oppositional candidate would win, but th there is a hope uh, that we all Russian voters can harm Putin by by voting for. Uh, anyone else. And I think this, uh, this Navalny strategy is, go is going to, to be fulfilled. And Peter, let's not forget that we're not even a year uh, into the, the failed mutiny uh, by uh, Prigozhin um, of Vladimir Putin really uh, attempting to cripple his reign there, one of the biggest threats to, to his control over the country last summer. Obviously, he then died mysteriously, uh, as we know, it was blown up in, in a plane, uh, in a bomb explosion on a, on a plane. We have this, I'll put it in air quotes, election next month. Uh, there had always been this question since Navalny's return. I'm not sure it's, it's a really productive question to have asked, but was it worth it, especially knowing what would happen a year later, and that is Putin's full-scale invasion into Ukraine? Um, of course, Navalny, being a true patriot of Russia, said that any change would have to come from somebody who was inside the country. I, I'm wondering if you still view that, that that's, that's the future the country faces, that if there is any real change, that it will come from internal pressure and not from any sort of outside views or pressure that can come on, on the, the Kremlin. I mean, I, I, don't, I, I think Mikhail is the expert on the internal dynamics of Russia. What I can tell you is this, that, that Putin... Um, sees these two things as deeply connected. Um, he starts his expansionist wars um, when he sees that uh, there is some danger to himself internally. Um, and um, at the moment, 
the biggest way to stand up to that does come from the outside. Um, let's not keep on waiting for the miracle of, I don't know, the bravery of Navalny or the craziness of Prigozhin. We are the ones who have agency. Um, um, Secretary Clinton was just talking about the struggles that Ukrainians have with ammunition on the front. We can easily replenish that ammunition if um, the US Congress passes the aid bill. But actually, it is Putin who will face a shortfall in ammunition in just one year. Yeah, in just one year, according to analysts. Um, and um, it's a much, much, much more fragile system than it looks from the outside. And it's up to us to put pressure back and then maybe the new generation of Navalny's will be able to rise up. I don't know. But I do know that at the moment, the agency lies with us. Yeah. And Putin has bet on that he could weather all of the pressure and condemnation that he would receive from the West when he jailed Navalny upon his return. And he's making that same bet now when it comes to his war on Ukraine, as you said, perhaps another year or two uh, of this sustained focus on the war now and his fighting. And perhaps he's betting that Congress will not act and that there will be a change in leadership in the U.S. as well uh, with the upcoming elections. Uh, Mikhail Ziger, Peter Pomerantsev, Thank you so much. Um, we appreciate your time on a very sad day. Well, I want to bring in Evgenia Karamurza, wife of jailed Russian opposition figure Vladimir Karamurza, and she joins me now. Um, Genia, uh, thank you so much for joining us. If anyone can understand what Alexei's family um, is going through right now and experiencing, it is you, your husband also. Uh, a true Russian patriot, survived poisoning a number of times and once again is sitting behind bars uh, unlawfully um, following his opposition to the war in Ukraine. I'm curious to get your reaction to the news of the death of Alexei Navalny. Hello, Viana. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, um, Alexei Navalny's team has not yet confirmed the news. Yes. And uh, um, Yulia herself uh, has spoken at Munich, uh, but she said that she had not received any confirmation from the Russian authorities either. So the Russian authorities have not yet notified the family of Alexei of his death. And I know that the chances of him still being alive are extremely slim. Um, and maybe I just um, maybe it's what I do. I've been doing this for years. Uh, both times that my husband was poisoned in the past, he was given a 5% survival chance. And I thought, I'd take that. I take those 5% and I'll, I'll do everything I can. Um, so I, I can only imagine how, what horror they're living through right now, his loved ones. And my heart goes out to them entirely and breaks for them. I cannot, um, if anyone needed yet another demonstration of the nature of Vladimir Putin's regime, and I mean, uh, if the, the war in Ukraine and the war crimes committed there are somehow not enough, well, this is yet another demonstration that the only thing a bully understands is a strong response. There is nothing else that works. And I was, you know, when I was trying to process that information this morning, I thought to the interview with uh, Tucker Carlson recently. And I was thinking about how he sat there uh, listening to Vladimir Putin's mumbling about uh, this historical nonsense and thinking, well, 
He has not asked one single question about war crimes in Ukraine. He has not asked him about repression in Russia and about hundreds and thousands of Russian political prisoners. And Vladimir Putin believed yet again that he could get away with all of that. I believe so. It's, it's the only thing a bully understands is force, is strength of his opponent. And... Um, well, I'm horrified today. Evgenia, you mentioned Tucker Carlson. I don't want to spend too much time talking about him, but uh, I do want to read to you and to our viewers uh, about something you just referenced and why he wasn't asked about the war. Um, he was asked uh, in a separate um, summit a few days after his interview, whatever you want to call it, with Putin. He was asked why he didn't talk about freedom of speech in Russia or Navalny or the assassinations, the multiple assassinations coming down at the hands of the Kremlin. And Tucker's response was, quote, every leader kills people, including my leader. Some kill more than others. Leadership requires killing people. And I raise this not just because this is a jaw-dropping response, but it echoes something that we heard from former President Trump when he was then candidate Trump, I believe, in 2015. And that is, you know, we have killers here in the U.S. too. Uh, how dangerous, speak to how dangerous comments like that are in response to what we're seeing perpetrated by the Russian regime on a daily basis. Uh, these comments are indeed very, very dangerous, and they are absolutely despicable also. And uh, I believe that this is why Vladimir Putin gave uh, this interview to Carlson, because he did not need a reliable journalist. He needed someone like Tucker Carlson, who repeats and reiterates the messages put out there by former President Trump. He needed someone with a large audience and someone who would help him um, get out his message about um, his claims on Ukraine being somehow legitimate and about um, him not really being a killer, but, well, you know, he's a good guy who really wants peace. Um, this is despicable. And the only thing I can say about Vladimir Putin is that this despicable atrocity of a man um, who calls himself the president of the Russian Federation, should be stopped. He has to be stopped. And that is the only way war will be stopped and repression in Russia will be stopped. There's so many similarities between your husband and uh, Alexei Navalny, I would say, between you and Julia, obviously, because you're, you're both partners with your husbands in their missions. Um, and this is something that you both fought for together. Uh, as a team. The question a lot of people have is just the incredible courage of someone like Alexei Navalny to go back to Russia knowing what possibly could await him there um, when he could have stayed in the West in safety. The same can be said of, of your husband, Vladimir, who had survived two assassination attempts, could have lived in the West, in the United States, and decided to go back can you explain why, the, the, the rationale behind those actions? Well, they're both true Russian patriots, and they believe that our country deserves better. Uh, my husband has always believed that um, Vladimir Putin feels fear and that it was... Um, his duty has always been Vladimir's duty to stand by those Russians 
who face those risks and challenges back home, the risks and challenges of this regime. Um, and this, is, this has always been his motivation to not back down, to not give in to intimidation, to not give in to fear, because when we talk about the courage of these people, we need to realize that they're just as fragile and just as vulnerable as any other human being. And it is not the absence of fear that pushes them forward, because uh, feeling fear is very human, it's very natural, but it is the understanding of there is, that there is something bigger than fear. There is something more important that you, than your fear. And sometimes you need to somehow fight your fear and push against it and go forward. And um, my husband has always been such a person and I will always stand by him and continue the fight with him in that, if that is what's needed of me. Does the news, um, and you're right to say that it hasn't been confirmed by Navalny's family or, or his team, uh, but if in fact it is, does the news of his death worry you about the safety of your husband, Vladimir? And when was the last time you spoke with him? Do you know how he's doing? Um, I believe that the news about Alexei's possible death um, have uh, affected every single family of political prisoner in Russia. And uh, because we all know what kind of repressive methods are being used by the authorities against those who refuse to be silent. And we know that these people are subject to, um, to all kinds of torture on a daily basis. And the lives of these people behind bars are indeed in grave danger, as is the life of my husband. Um, last time, well, uh, just before New Year's, uh, at the end of uh, December, Vladimir was allowed a 15-minute phone call with our kids. Uh, we have three kids, so that's five minutes each. And I was standing there with a timer because I couldn't let any one of them to speak to their father for longer than five minutes because that would have taken time away from the other two. And of course, I did not speak to Vladimir either because I didn't want to take that time away from the kids. That was the first call, the 15 minute call in over half a year. Um, Vladimir, you know, on the 14th of uh, February, we celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary. That was not the way we planned to celebrate it, um, but here we are. And Vladimir put in a request for a phone call with me and the prison authorities responded that this was not um, an exceptional circumstance that would allow such a call. So I have not talked to my husband since last summer. Oh, that is just so hard to, to hear. And um, I am just with you and uh, your children, I've met them before their wonderful, beautiful family when you were all together. And I am praying, really, truly, Zhenya, praying for you all to be reunited very, very, very soon. Um, my, my last question to you in terms of 
the proper or most effective response to the now alleged reported death of Alexei Navalny, you heard from President Biden saying that would be Congress finally signing into law that legislation that would provide some $60 billion in aid uh, that Ukraine desperately needs right now in its war with Ukraine. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And it should have been done yesterday. It should have been done without Alexei Navalny dying for this. Because uh, Vladimir Putin committed uh, similar crimes in the past and got away with it every single time. Now, for two years, a war of aggression is being led in Ukraine and people are dying on a daily basis. Civilians are dying on a daily basis. And Vladimir Putin is using all kinds of absolutely war techniques that are forbidden by, you know, everywhere in the civilized world. So Ukraine has to be victorious in this war on Ukraine's terms. And that is crucial because maybe that will send a clear message to the Kremlin that Vladimir Putin and his government would no, no longer be um, allowed to get away with committing such atrocious crimes. The only thing this regime knows how to do is to steal, kill and lead wars. And this regime has to be stopped if we want peace to be restored and if we want repression to end. Really strong words to end on. Evgeny uh, Karamursa, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Biana. And finally, the shock of Navalny's apparent death is clearly being felt across the globe. Aside from being a fierce advocate for Russian democracy, he was also a loving father and husband, who only two days ago on Valentine's Day tweeted a photo of his wife and wrote in Russian, I love you more and more with all my strength. Alexei Navalny, 47 years old. Well, that is it for now. Thank you so much for watching. And goodbye from New York. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.